Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm the voice of the pod. My name is Dan Levy, also producer here. And alongside with me, we have the Silver Slugger, the All-Star, the Golden Glover, and a guy who likes a good a good plate of orange roughy. Brett Boone, what's going on, man? Hey, Danny. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. What's going on with you? Oh, not not much. Not much. A little gym today. I was going to say, got in a, Chicago, it's a big it's, podcast. In Chicago, it's rainy. Were you playing some golf today? Nice and warm out there? No, no golf. Still good weather, though. San Diego's tough to go wrong. That is true. And speaking of a good podcast and a good guest today, on the phone right now, 2015 AL MVP, three-time All-Star, two-time Silver Slugger Award, and current third baseman for the Minnesota Twins. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Donaldson. What up, Josh? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, JD, what's going on? I haven't talked to you in, oh, in you know, years. You've had like eight uni since we've talked. Yeah, it's been a <laughs> while, man. I, you know, think hopefully this uh, the twins is going to be the last one for me. Yeah. Um, all right, let's start it off. Bringer of the rain. Just cue me into this. How did this come about? I want to know. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of socially inept when it comes to the you know, the social media, I'm getting older, you know, I'm a little older now. You get, tell me how bringer of the rain came bringer of rain. Sorry. Well, yeah. Bringer of rain. Well, I, I stole it. I didn't come up with it. I stole it from a series. It was on, um, was it HBO, but I start, it was on stars network, uh, called Spartacus blood and sand. And Spartacus, to just give you the quick stories of it, Spartacus was um, caught by the Roman Empire. They sold him into um, slavery to where he ended up going into a gladiator place. Wasn't bought in on it, bought in. He had to fight a legend of the arena. His name was Theocles. He'd been stabbed over a thousand times with swords and he was this monster and he was such a legend that they actually put two gladiators against him and they were doing it for a sacrifice for their city because they were in a drought for three or four months and uh, long story shortened up a little bit more is uh, Spartacus defeats him and and wins and is shortly after he um wins this battle it begins to rain hence the name he got Spartacus bringer of rain and i was like hey you know what i feel like i've uh you know kind of dethroned some gladiators slash warriors legends uh to get where i'm at today i'm gonna use it that is very and, and you know what I would sit there. I would have no clue to that backstory. I'm sitting there and for the people out there listening to the Boone podcast, this, this kid on the show today, he's one of my favorites, favorite current players. I just, from the time I met him, he just, he just had that energy, he had that something, he had that it factor, he had that edge. And, and I told him from a, from when I first met him, I said, you got a chance to do something special on the baseball field. And he's always been a really good player, but he's up that he won the 2015 MVP. But I, JD, I would have never thought that that was the backstory. When you did it, I said, yeah, that's Josh bringing the rain. I don't know. He's talking about hitting homers and it's bringing the rain. That's what I thought about. It. So that was interesting. Cause I never, I never knew that at all. That's deep yeah, into the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was deep. Yeah, a lot of people think of it as the home run thing. And, you know, it's kind of transpired to that. You know, uh, last year, or not last year, I guess when the season's over now, but two years ago when I was in Atlanta, a lot of guys had the idea of, you know, after I hit a homer, bringing the umbrella around. And uh, so, you know, it's kind of taken a little bit life of its own, but that's where, that's where I got it from. All right. So we're recently, uh, we recently finished up the 2020 World Series. Uh, I know you're a big student in the game. I know you mm-hmm. you watch you you study it. What do you think? Give me give me your impression of this year's uh, World Series. And we'll get to uh, the, the we'll get to the Series. Snell thing. Yeah, the World Series. I mean, um, I, I to me, my own personal thoughts is 
when you have a team like the Dodgers, that one of the highest payroll games or highest payroll teams in the game, and you're you're using openers. It, it, to me, baseball loses a little bit of that. Um, you know the what what the fans would hope to see it because I remember when I came to the ballpark. You know, I, fortunately for me, I got to grow up around Atlanta at the time when they had Greg Maddox, Smoltz, Tom Glavin. Uh, to be able to go to the ballpark, go to a game and like, hey man, I'm going to get to see Greg Maddox pitch today, or John Smoltz, Tom Glavin. Like to me, that was part of the, uh, you know, intrigued, being intrigued to go watch that game, be, getting excited for it. And then obviously, I've always been a, a hitter at heart. So to go see Tony Gwynn, to go see Chipper Jones, to go see Ron Gant. Uh, to see some of these guys, you know, have their bats. That's what intrigued me. So when I see that as a remembering what it was like to be a fan, and I actually took a poll on my Twitter account, uh, you know, during the World Series, or uh, I think maybe it was a game before the World Series, a couple of games before the World Series, like, hey, like, I just want to know because maybe I'm losing it from a fan's perspective. Like, do you care about openers and, you know, using a, in a, a bullpen? to an entire bullpen to try to win a game. And, you know, some people didn't care. And then you had some people that did care and didn't, uh, and, and some that do care. But for me personally, I care just watching the game. I just think baseball loses a little bit of that edge. And, and I never, re- you know, and maybe I don't cause um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I retired 12 years ago and it's kind of the game's changed a lot, you know, and, and I try yeah. to embrace, I embrace it. I'm not going to be one of the, I always told myself when I was playing, when I'm done playing and I'm on the other side and, and I'm watching the current crop, I'm not going to be that guy that said, oh, when we played, it was the greatest. It's great. I think I can learn from, you know, my dad's generation, my grandfather's generation, and, and I can learn from your guys' generation. And I have a son that just signed mm-hmm. uh, with the Nationals. And he's got a lot of interesting things. I, you know, I, I envy you guys in a way for all the data you have and the and the intel that you have right at your fingertips. Because I was a rat. I wanted to know everything I could about every pitcher that I faced. And so, in a way, I'm envious. But in another way, I, I think it gets a little bit away from the purity of the game. And that, you know, I think the real talented baseball people are there for a reason and and they manage a lot of times with their gut and they make decisions with their gut. What, what is your mm-hmm. thought? I, I mean, and I'll just bring up the obvious and it was the Snell. He, he gets pulled out in the fifth, you know, he's got five and I think five and a third. He's got nine punch outs. Yep. You know, he's got a hell of a Dodger lineup. You're dealing with, you know, you're mm-hmm. not dealing with your yeah. ever, average lineup, but it was that old adage of, Oh, third time through the lineup, which in 2020 is, become pretty prevalent and a lot of people are, are instituting that type of strategy. I know it was probably set before the game started. It didn't matter what was going on, but I'm sitting, I'm, I'm in a situation where I'm thinking you got Bueller, who's one of the best pitchers in the world sitting there for game seven. You got your best mm-hmm. guy on the mound in Snell and he's dealing against a great lineup. And, and you could tell he didn't want to come out of the game, but, but it's almost like it was pre it was our, the decision was already made before the national anthem ended that at this pitch count, third time through the lineup, this is what we're doing no matter what. And man, I, I, I just don't know that you can do it on that big of a stage. That's just my my a little bit of old school in me thinking. I love to embrace the new the new technology, but man, when it comes nut cut crunching time uh i don't know i had a tough time with that decision what what are you thinking as a current player watching that yeah you know for me i think so you get this theory about old school then you get the new school and and i feel like people where they lose is like you can mix both of the these schools like both schools were successful for uh, both schools are successful for a reason um, and as a player, as you said earlier, for myself and continuing, you're always searching for that edge as far as like, what can I do? And part of that is having a feel for the game. Like, and that's where the new school is lacking so much at is there's no feel. I mean, you watch the playoffs throughout the entirety. Base running was atrocious. 
and you look at it, it, it makes it difficult when there's so many shifts. Um, you know, even when I first came up, Booney, I mean, you could speak to this too. Like, you, I mean, you just know right away, like where the guys on the field were. Guys are moving around so much in the on the field that that ball that was hit up the middle, that was a line drive, was a knock, and you just knew that it was a hit every time. Like now it's not there anymore. Now it's changed. Now maybe it's there for a pitch. The next time it doesn't. So that watching the angle, so the shifts to me have affected base running more than uh, a lot of people think of. Uh, so I think that was part of the reasoning of it. But I also think that guys just you know, it's not as taught, like there's not as many conversations going on about it. To get back to your point about Snell, I thought it was fans to kind of see it on the biggest stage because you see where this new school age is missing the boat. Everybody, and you heard Mookie Betts, you heard several guys from the Dodgers say when they saw Snell getting taken out, taken out, thank you. Like oh, we had nothing a, for we had nothing we we had nothing for Snell today. He was absolutely pinpoint. He's, it wasn't. He had zero stressful innings. You know who had the stressful innings during that game? The L.A. Dodgers hitters. They had the stressful innings, and they were searching. And you could tell that they were searching. But guess what? Like with these guys that are told what to do, and I thought it was actually hilarious. To hear Kevin Cash talk about, it. he said, "Oh, uh, you know, people think the game's scripted. That's not the case. We did. I didn't want him to go through the third time through the lineup with Mookie Betts and all these guys. Like, hey, bro, you just debunked yourself by saying you didn't want to script it because you didn't want him to get to the third time through the lineup. That's scripted." I don't care if you said, if you talked about it or not. You scripted it by saying you didn't want to go to the third. You didn't trust your eyes enough to say, hey, man, this guy's nasty tonight. He might be pitching the best game of his life. And he's my horse, former Cy Young Award winner. I'm going to win and die. Uh, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep him in the ball game until he tells me it's time to come out. Yeah, and, and that's what, you know – from from even 10 years ago, 12, 12 years ago, that's how it was. If your horse was out there, there yeah. was a look. And, you know, Josh, as infielders, we come in, you know, we gather. When, when the manager comes out in a situation like that, all the infielders gather around. And we're kind of looking. Or we, can, we can feel what's going on. And, and oh, yeah. you know, you, you guys live together. What, what people out there need to understand is as a team – we live with each other. We're almost family for six months. We know each other inside. Now that manager knows the look in the, in Snell's eyes when he does when he's done, and he knows that look where get off my mound. I got this game, and, and I think that was lost in that exchange. Is man, I don't know how he could do it. And I think speaking to your point, I think it's tremendous as a hitter when when we're facing somebody like that that is that dominant that's got nine punch outs through five innings. And it's dealing and they go to the pen, especially they went to Anderson, who's been really good all year, but he's been struggling a little bit in the postseason. Yeah. I don't care who's coming mm-hmm. into the game, you know, and to date myself a little bit. That's like saying we got Randy Johnson in the fifth inning. He just punched me out yeah. twice. I'm going through the third, and they're going to take him out. I'm doing cart cartwheels, backflips in that dugout. And you just yeah, shot. A, a, you just gave us a shot of adrenaline which an already loaded Dodgers lineup. And, and I don't want to be sit here and this, this isn't about bashing cash. It's whatever, you know, he lives by that sword. He, he dies by it. I just think with the new age of, of all these saber metrics and I think it's also a way to escape criticism. There's no Without accountability. Hey, yeah, Hey, the computer said to do it. To say is, that's my point. I was about to help you with saying is like, Kevin Cash, but that's what he signed up for. Like, he signed up. Like, he's the manager. He's supposed to be calling the shots. You're going to use analytics. Well, guess what? When your strategy backfires, it's just like before analytics came in and the guy said, oh, I like this matchup. It's the same talk, but not there's numbers. Maybe the manager just had a different feel 
back then and say, ah, I like that matchup better based off feel versus uh, this matchup based off numbers. At the end of the day, both of them, uh, when it doesn't work out, there's going to be voices of criticism. And especially when somebody's dominating. It's, it, it, I mean, the last time I saw a guy get uh, pulled out of the game when it was a soft single uh, was with the team when the guy had a no hitter going into the ninth and they were up seven nothing. Like, that's a, his pitch count got too high. Not 73 pitches in the game six <laughs> of the World Series, the biggest game for your organization that you've ever had. And you got your big dog on the mound. Like, to me, that's just as an infielder. I'm sitting there. I'm probably inside. I'm like, what the hell are we doing? And and, and you I, saw Blake Snell say that. Like, what what are we doing? So this whole this word that's called momentum in the game. By making that decision, he automatically flipped that momentum from when it was in his team's favor. He automatically just by that one decision gave it to L.A. and you saw what happened from it. Yeah, if me and you are teammates and we're in that dugout, we're we're kind of just looking at each other, giggling like they really going to do this. They're going to give us a chance because we got no chance off him. And yeah. you know, that's all I was thinking. Like, man, I'm sitting there with my teammates. That you know, the hitters that you know, we always usually. And I know you do this too. The guys that usually surround you in a lineup. You're chatting with them all game because it's, you know, you get mm-hmm. strategy from it. How are they going to pitch you? You know, mm-hmm. how have you done off him? So, you know, are they going to pitch around me? They're going to come right at me and a base opens. It mm-hmm. Just idle chit chat. But I but I know uh, if something like that happened and, and I was a Dodger, they're, they're just looking at each other, giggling, going. We got a chance, boys. And that, and that's all you need sometime in a, yep. in a postseason game. All right, give me a little, you know, for, for someone that, oh, shoot, I, I didn't go through it. You know, I had a brother go through it as, as, as management, but what was this season like? I know you got hurt. You're, you've been having problems with that calf, mm-hmm. so you missed some time. Mm-hmm. But give me a little insight what, the, what this season, what, what this 60-game schedule was like, the bubble and uh, what do you like about, you know, they put a couple new rules in there, the runner on second. I thought it was kind of little leaguey. What did, what did you think it about the, the new little rules and the, uh, just the whole overall experience of the bubble in the 60-game schedule? Yeah, I mean, I think the 60-game the schedule kind of is what it is. Like the players, we tried to fight for more games uh, at the end of the day. The 60-game schedule for a lot of guys, this, especially this year, there were so many protocols, so much difference uh, into what was going on that, you know, it took some time to get adjusted to. But you just kind of – I feel like as a player, you were always just sitting there waiting for, all right, when's the – when's shit about to hit the fan? Uh, and which is – it's not something that you want to be thinking about or concerned about during the – playing a professional season because there's so much uh, energy that has to be spent preparing for the game, getting ready for the game and energy spent during the game. Um, At the same time, it it is what it is. And uh, to to further the point of the main on second. um, Yeah, I think it was just that. And and this is the one thing that concerned me kind of going into the season. It's going to concern me moving forward is it's okay to change the game to a certain degree uh, as far as making rules, but turning, putting a man at second base in extra innings um, for a team that didn't deserve it is it's just kind of, or both teams don't deserve having a guy at second base. You got to earn that. And we all know how difficult it is to scratch runs across. I just felt like you're changing the game too much uh, in that aspect, even with the season um, as shortened as it was at the end of the day, man, we had uh, more players on a roster than there's ever been, except, you know, prior to the, I think it was the strike that happened and there was a shortened uh, season. I know there was an expanded roster at that time, but maybe what you do, what you're trying to put everybody on the same playing field at that time, but that's not the case. Like 
teams are better because they have better players, not just one through five, but one through, you know, for this year is one through 28. And if you're not testing that team throughout that entire roster, and that's kind of what you're doing. You're trying to shorten the game. So guys aren't playing. The games aren't lasting as long. You're giving teams that do not have depth throughout their entire lineup or their entire uh, bullpen pitching staff or organization as a whole, you're giving them more of a chance. And that's not what baseball is about. Baseball is about, hey, who's got the best team? Who's got the the deepest team? And that's where I kind of disagree with it. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think that's a great point because I was trying to break it. And I've been asked a million times, what do you think about the schedule? Well, I said, considering it, you know, I think they did a pretty good job with the postseason. I, I think it really showed strength of, of pitching depth because for the first time mm-hmm. in postseason up until the World Series, there was no travel yes. day. You never played yes. seven straight. And, and my first thought, and I didn't hear it said that much, I said, the thing is, the, the lesser team – has an advantage when there's days off because they can reset their their rotation. Yeah. The deep, the deeper team with the most pitching uh, has the advantage when there's no days mm-hmm. off because they can go one more than you can go. And I thought that was interesting. Exactly. So I thought, and and plus there was four sets of pl- or three sets of playoffs and then the World Series because people were worried about you know sixteen teams making the postseason. I think that was good for the game this year because you got you kept sixteen cities yeah. interested, and and I think that's good for baseball. And I also think with that extra set of playoffs and the way they set it up. Man, to be a mediocre team and get to the World Series this year would have been really hard. There's just too many landmines. Mm-hmm. So I think with everything mm-hmm. said, and I don't know if you agree or not, I think they did a pretty good job at getting the two best teams at the end of the season playing each other. I, I, I thought they did a pretty good job there. But I, but I'm with you yeah. on the. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not 100% a fan of having 16 teams in the playoffs. I do agree to you for this year, there's somewhat of an exception for that. Um, you know, I just don't, and here's where, our, where as a player, where I look at it, when you have 16 teams, now you're devaluing the season. If it was a 162 game schedule, you're devaluing the, the schedule and how hard it is to win games. Um, and also you're going to allow more teams that do not deserve to be in the playoffs to make that opportunity. And what I mean by deserving is they're not going out there and buying, buying players. They're not, they're not always trying to put their best lineup at the time in the game. There's going to be a lot more of guys sitting out coming in. You're, you're going to rest guys more because now it's not as important to get to the one seed or, uh, or just fighting to make the playoffs in and of itself. Uh, so you're not always going to get the best product on the field. That's why I am somewhat opposed to that, having 16 games or 16 teams into the postseason. But with that said, for the shortened season, I get it. You want to get – like the Houston Astros made a, a deep run into the postseason this year, and they weren't very good during the season, right? Right. Uh, but they are – They've shown they're very they're very much a quality and they have the players in order to win in the postseason. They just you know with the circumstances of the season and there's obviously a lot of other variables. They probably didn't play as well as they did. It was good for I think it was good to have the Astros in, uh, whether you like the Astros or not, and agree with whatever they did. I still think for the game of baseball, it's good to have them in there. Uh, but there was also some other teams in there that were like, eh, probably could have dealt with not having them in there. Right. I mean, for the first time, I think you had teams make it to the postseason with a losing record. You know, in my time, I, yeah. I've never seen anything yeah. like that. But, you know, for the for the short term, for this one kind of weird season, I thought it was all right. Tell me about launch angle. Well, so the launch angle for me, like I've been more oppressed, uh, vocal about guys hitting the ball in the air. You know, for me growing up, uh, and, and Booney, I'm not going to speak for you, but I, I would assume that it was kind of be somewhat of what I was taught is a good at bat was if you hit something hard on the ground. Uh, and that was the focus. 
for to me, I'm not a burner. And, and honestly, you go look at the numbers, major league average for balls hit on the ground is, I haven't checked it for this year, but it's predominantly under 200 for major league average throughout the season, throughout all, all the balls put in play. So when you look at that and you say, hey, man, get the ball on some green grass, preferably not on the ground uh, and in the air, whether it's a soft line drive, whether it's a hard line drive. So you have these optimal degrees of if you're trying to get a hit, I want to say it's 6 to 12. Basically, that's a line drive is what you're going for. And that's what, for me, if you don't have pop, you need to live in that area. So that's your line drive swing. And it's the same thing that you and I, they would also tell us, hey, hit line drives, low line drives, low line drives. But what you're coming to find out is guys that do have power, you can hit balls in the air in somewhat, you know, where you're not absolutely destroying a, a baseball at 24 to 29 degrees at launch angle. So that's more of your, more of your fly ball range. Those balls are getting rewarded and it's a home run. And then your guys that have a lot of pop, they can miss even a little bit higher than that and get the ball to carry out. So for me, my thought was, and I actually got it from when I got fitted uh, for golf clubs for the first time. And I'm sitting there, I'm hitting my driver on the launch monitor and he's sitting there telling me, he's like, Hey man, like we're going to try to get you at this spin. And if you can hit it at this degree of launch off the team, you're going to maximize your distance. And I'm he said that to me and I go, what, I go, what the hell did you just say to me? I can, there's like a certain degree of where I could maximize uh, how far I hit it. And he's like, yeah this is this is it right there and sure enough i started hitting it and i just started launching golf balls and i go man i'm like i want to be able to do this in the game like as far as my baseball career and part of that is having a positive um a positive impact swing so as ted williams said in his book i wish i would have read it when i was a kid growing up because maybe i would have got onto it before that is having barely, you know, to, to create that uh, trajectory that you want is to be able to catch the ball. It's going to be more out in front, a, a, a hair, and to where the swing is going to be ascend, ascending up, not tremendously. And, you know, to me, like a, a big uppercut is, you know, like a Chris Davis kind of, and not the one for Oakland, but for – Baltimore or, you know, even, you know, Jim Edmonds, like big uppercut type swing. Pat Burrell had a, a big uppercut swing. So not to that extent, I think there's uh, advantages to like the for where it's the pitch that's down. You can get away with a little bit more of a steeper plane going down into the ball, making contact, which is more of a downward swing and the pitch that's up you have to have a little bit more of a flatter swing. So in the game, it's not, I'm not sitting there saying, Hey, I'm trying to hit this baseball 24 degree launch. I'm trying to match the plane of the pitch in my preparation before the game is going to dictate, you know, all right, if I'm trying to hit balls in the air, I'm not going to necessarily think about hitting the top part of the baseball. I'm going to think about hitting the middle to two thirds of the ball ball on the bottom half to where I can clip that and, and to be wherever I can hit the ball in the air. But for me, swinging down, I was hit when the, when coaches would tell me, Hey, swing down, I would just hit balls on the ground all the time. And I was just constantly rolling balls over, rolling balls over. And until I started thinking and preparing like, all right, I'm going to think more in a good miss for me. And when I talk about miss, it's where I, I just get underneath the ball or before this time it'd be, I'd hit a ball hard on the ground. So I'd hit on top of the baseball that those are still misses. 
even though uh, I I found the barrel. Well, I focus you became know, when my when my focus became I want to miss in the air versus on the ground. Then I started driving the baseball, and then it also built in a um, a different type of success. That's still to me. It's still successful if I hit the ball in the air. I just miss it, but I had the right approach. Uh, obviously, depending on the game situation, etc., there will be more uh, advantages at times. If I, maybe if a guy needs to get a runner over, infield back, get a guy in, you would want to miss more on the top of the baseball. But if we're talking nobody on, no nobody on. Nobody out. Like I'm up there trying to drive a baseball. Right. I'm not Damage trying to time. hit a single. Yeah. And and you know, still to this day, and my favorite skipper of all time, Lou Pinella. And and mm-hmm. he would sit there and he'd kind of roll through. It would be Edgar Martinez and myself, and we did a lot of work before the game. And Lou would you know casually just wander through. And, and his thing would be hit the top half of the ball. And I would tell him, mm-hmm. I said, Lou, let me tell you this. Top half of the ball is six, four, three. That's a double play. <laughs> I want to hit the mm-hmm. bottom half and I want to get that backspin. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? I don't know if he didn't care. It's just something he'd been saying for 50 years. But, but I, never, I never understood it. I said, why would you tell me to hit the top half of the ball? That's a grounder. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hit a grounder. Mm-hmm. Like you said, infield mm-hmm. back, I got two strikes. I'm battling my butt off. And a grounder mm-hmm. will do to get that run just to score that run. Well, I'll take a grounder mm-hmm. all day long. But when I'm up mm-hmm. there t- trying to compete and get a hit, I, I want that backspin. I want that ball to take mm-hmm. off on a line. And, and I don't, it, it's beyond me. And like I said, Lou, my favorite of all time, but he would say that. And after a while, we just kind of look at him like, whatever, Skipper, <laughs> just, just go out there and manage us. But uh, it, it was fascinating to me. It's like, how, how do you think top half of the ball? I don't know. Anyway, has been around the game for a long time to where that was just what people said, you know, be, stay short, hit the top of the half of the baseball way. Right, level swing, you know, level swing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, like for me, it's when people talk about short swing, this, that, and other, like I don't want my swing to be short and quick out of the zone. I want my swing to be as long through the zone as possible, not long to where the bat is never getting to the zone or where I'm getting around baseballs, but from, from when the bat enters the strike zone to when it exits the strike zone, I want to have a lot of time where my barrel is running through that zone of the plate to where I have a better chance to make hard contact with the barrel of the ball. Yep. And, and only good things can happen. The longer you keep that that barrel mm-hmm. in the hitting zone, and you'll see over time, the great hitters are the one that keep it in that hitting zone the longest. And the, your average hitter is like a hinge door. It's in and it's out. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't care how mm-hmm. fast or how slow it is. It, it's not a high success rate. It, it, once in a while, you'll run into one. But the guys that are in and out of the strike zone, percentage-wise, are, are not going to be top hitters all right who's uh favorite places you've played favorite teammates favorite managers three prong question all right so favorite places that i played uh i mean toronto's it was my toronto was my favorite place to play at before i went to toronto playing in toronto was great uh i i enjoyed it and i mean it's kind of and I had my best, by the best years of my career so far in Toronto. So I'm a little bit partial to that. I've always enjoyed playing in Minnesota. That was a big reason why I wanted to sign in Minnesota because I I'd had a lot of success hitting at that ballpark. Uh, so those two are probably my favorite. Um, and I would say favorite teammates that I had. Uh, I mean, Troy Tulowitzki is probably been, he's my favorite teammate that I've ever had. Uh, on the pitching side, David Price was a, uh, one of, he was one of my favorite teammates, him, Grant Balfour, 
Johnny Gomes. I've had so many incredible teammates that could go on and on and on. Nelson Cruz was awesome this year. I loved him. Um, As we talked about, he's one of my favorites. And and I don't know Nelson that well, just in passing. But I've just, for some reason, you know, I've always, since his days in Texas in the post, I just loved his swing. I love the way he stops it. At the end, I love that smile on his face. He looks like he's having fun. And, and he just looks like a kind soul. So that's my only reason for liking him. And he can rake, and he's still raking at 42 or whatever he is. Yeah, he, yeah I think he's 41, I think. Uh, but, yeah, he rakes, and he's, he's a really good guy. Favorite managers I've had this far, honestly, all my managers have been great. Uh, I can't, I, I don't know if I can say a favor of them, uh, but I've, I've really enjoyed playing for, for all the managers I've been with. I've, I feel like I've been around a, a bunch of quality and players, managers, guys that care about the players um, and, and listen to what they have to say. 2015, you won the MVP. Remember when I, we first met in, uh, yeah. I was in Oakland. I meet this kid. Uh-huh. He's got a semi mohawk. And we were, I think we were in Bo Mel's office, Bob Melvin's office in, in Oakland in yep. spring training. And this kid's going, You Brett Boone? I said, Yeah, yeah, I used to be at least. And I was working at the time in the minor leagues. And I started, me and Josh kind of started talking and, and I ended up really liking him. So I started watching you. And, and I'd just be hanging around the cage watching him hit. And, and, and I said, this kid has a chance to be really and, – and I think you were coming off a pretty good year. Not not an MVP-type year, but, like, you'd, you'd had arrived. Like, uh, all right, he had, his, he had his year. And I remember talking to you saying, man, you could do something special in this game. And, and you were kind of – you hadn't had that MVP year yet, but, but I could tell because you were so – you wanted it. You, you, you were really a student of the game. And that's what I appreciated about you was – this kid really takes it serious and he studies the game and he wants to be the best he can be. And usually the guys like that couple that with, with ability, you're usually going to be pretty successful. So I've always had kind of a, a special kid whenever, you know, and then my son started watching now, my son, Oh, I told him I was going to talk to you today. He goes, Oh, Josh is one of my favorites. I said, I know. And, uh, but, it, but I said to you, I said, you have a chance to do something real special. And it seemed like I think the next year or two years later, you won your MVP. And not that I got to talk to you about it much, but but for me, for the retired player, I got to tell my buddies, hey, I told you this kid right here, because I would talk about you to my friends. I said, watch this Josh Donaldson the next couple of years, because uh, he's got a chance to do something special. And then you did it. And I was just kind of shining my ring over here going, I told you, I'm the guru. But uh, I, that was pretty cool. Well, I, I appreciate that. I remember when we were talking uh, the first time that we were out and uh, taking batting practice and you're like, hey, man, you stick stay in the right center like you do, you're going to do some big things. Continue to learn the strike zone. Uh, take your walks when you when, when they're there for you, and you're going to have success. And yeah, that's something that's always stuck with me. Um, and, and I take pride in being able to you know, hit the ball to all sides of the field and having the ability to do that and also to be able to control the strike zone. That's just something that I know just as well as you know, if you can do those things, um, you're going to have success at the major league level. It's a lot easier said than done, <laughs> but if you can do it, there's a chance. And I think that's what you and I, when we first started talking, that was one of the big things that, you know, stuck with me. Um, and we touched on this a little earlier, but the, uh, walk walk the uh, the audience through – a pregame hitters meeting. And and you mentioned earlier the opener. In my day, we never even had an opener. I'll give you a quick scenario of our pregame meeting. Uh, yeah, his, his fastball is 93 to 94. His breaking ball is 84, 85. He likes to do this, 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 and this. Always at the end of that hitters meeting, let's get him out of the game. Let's get into that bullpen. That's not necessarily mm-hmm. the answer in today's game all the time because some teams strictly build their team around a power bullpen. You saw that with Tampa Bay. Everybody's coming out through yeah. 98, 99 miles an hour. Uh, 
you know, we used to have one or two guys in the pen. Nowadays, they've got a plethora, and it seems like the arms, you know, as the years goes on, the velocities, it, not necessarily the pitchers are getting better, but the physicality is getting noticeably, is starting to tick up. And I, I can notice that just by mm-hmm. watching the games. I think the, 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 guys are, the guys are getting, they're more athletic on a, on a percentage mm-hmm. basis. And I think it's your culture too. I think it's a year round thing. I think guys take care better care of themselves these days. They train year round. Uh, so that, that that's human development. That's a, but take, take uh, the audience through a pregame pregame hitters meeting before a series. Yeah. I mean, normally you go through all the pitchers, uh, the guy that's going to start that day. Then you go through all the bullpen guys and we'll have video of, all their pitches, what they do. Uh, Then you have what's on the iPad. You have information of counts of what pitch they throw and what count, what pitch they land in the strike zone and what count. Uh, You have the the release point, how far the release point gets down the mound. Um, You have arm angle slots. You have, um, what else would it be? You, you have their, obviously you have their below and all the pitches. Um, and, and really then it goes into, if you have a bats off guys, there's a separate video for you to watch on all your bats. What's what pitches they've thrown you in those uh, at bats. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of, that you can take. They have spin rate on guys' pitches now um, to where that tells a little bit of the story. I still think, no matter, I would rather, if you gave me a choice, have 10 at-bats off of a guy and make my own plan off of them and my own adjustments, like you would when you were playing, mm-hmm. versus versus not having any at-bats and then having to go strictly off data, I would take the 10 at-bats every time off the guy. Sure. But to me, that always, holds, that always holds more rank or value than what's in a pitching report or whatnot. I think right. there's... It, can, it can be good in certain situations to where if you have a guy that's a two-pitch guy, like you know he's going fastball slider. You know which one he's going to throw the most of. So it gives it helps you build your your approach to whatever pitch that is. But still like you're you you still have to get in the box and know like how are my eyes gonna perceive uh whatever this pitch is and where do I need it to start for it to be a pitch I wanna swing at or um am I gonna be aggressive early on in the at bat because he throws strikes or is he a little bit he lacks command. Do I do I have the opportunity to kind of wait about and try to get him into a count that is a good hitter's count? Yeah, and and the hitting this side of hitting. I mean, <laughs> we don't have enough time to talk about it because I that's that's mm-hmm. what I just love and and just the high level mental side of the hitting approach. And you talk about you know you can get all the intel in the world, but nothing's going to replace experience and that experience of being mm-hmm. in the box one-on-one against that guy and remembering, you know, I rem- I used to be able to remember stuff. I remember counts. I remember pitches. I remember what I did and that formulated mm-hmm. my plan for the next time I ran into that guy. Cause I know, I know mm-hmm. this guy knows whoever's on the mound that in a two Oh count fastball way, what I did with him. So now when I get to that two Oh count, he's probably not going fastball away. And and that's the, the high level thinking of hitting that I just, man, I could talk, <laughs> like I said, we don't have enough time for it, but, but I think it's, it's the coolest part of baseball, the game inside the game. What, uh, what was more rewarding for you MVP uh, or comeback player of the year? Man, uh... Two pretty good trophies. Yeah, you know, I felt like probably w- which one was more rewarding for me was probably to come back. Just because, you know, I dealt with two years prior to that, really getting, you know, missing uh, a decent amount of games due to injury. 
and to be able to in 2019 to put that behind me to go out there with in 2018 missing a hundred games in the regular season to be able to go out there the next year play 155 or 56 games how many ever I played to put the year that I did together especially I had a little bit of a slow start in 19 uh, to finish strong to help our team uh, win the division that was very uh, rewarding for me in 2015 and this hasn't been something I've told a lot of people. 2015, actually, uh, we I had my arbitration meeting two weeks before or a month before the season, and I had told the arbiter, or I, we finished our argument with moving from Oakland to Toronto. I believe that I'm going to win the MVP because in 13 I finished fourth, 14 I finished eighth, and battled through some injuries. 15, I knew I was where my body needed to be at. And I knew before the season started with the lineup that we had and with how I felt personally, not just physically, but mentally, that I was going to win the MVP award. Because that's just what I just was seeing very clear at that time where my career was at for that year going into it. So it was, I, I expected it. I expected that in 2015 out of myself. Uh, in 2019, I, there was, there was still doubt. Like, could I go out there and play a full season again? Like I did. Um, and so that's why it made it that much more rewarding. And going into 15, I pretty much knew I was going to win the MVP award. And 19, I still had like a little bit of doubt just because I've been dealing with injuries and injuries are difficult for any athlete, especially when I've had some reoccurring ones. Yeah. And I know you've been, you know, I, I was pretty, I was pretty lucky in my career. I went on the, uh, on the injured list a couple of times, uh, but I, but I was kind of able to do it. I know you've dealt with uh, a lot of crap. I know that calf's been a real problem for you. It keeps mm-hmm. cropping up. I know how much you love the game. I know how much you love being on that field. And, yeah. and the last couple of years, you've had some time, not last couple of years necessarily, but in recent times, you've had yeah. some downtime and been on the IEL. How, how, how have you been dealing with that? Because I know, you know, when you get that injury and it crops, all right, we got to rehab this thing and get it right so I can get back on the field. But when you're missing time and your boys are out on the field, uh, how, how, are you be, how are you able to deal with that? Has it been tough? Has it been? You yeah, know, I mean, hey, it kills me. I mean, it, it kills me every time I have to do it. I mean, every yeah. time that it's happened, and you know, some things are just out of our control. And you know, as an athlete, we always want to feel in control, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some things that happen that have been out of our control, and to or out of my control. And I'm still learning. My I'm still learning and trying to get. Uh, better trying to you know have the proper training have everything just continuing to learn about my body so I can continue to be out there um but because when I'm not out there it's tough it's it's tough to go out there and watch your boys play and not be a part of it and uh you know it's there's definitely, I mean, especially 2000, I'd say probably 18, there's definitely some, where that's where I missed 100 games, there's definitely probably some bouts of depression in there because of that. Uh, and that's part of also injuries is also not just dealing with it physically, but dealing with it mentally. That's the, mentally is probably the hardest thing to overcome at sometimes. Yeah, and, and you know, from the, the few times that I did get injured and I, I was on the, on the injured list, you know, and, and this is what people don't talk about or don't really, unless they've, they've actually witnessed it or, or experienced it. Uh, I remember going in and, and, you know, you're in that clubhouse and, and you're the man and, you know, you, mm-hmm. you play 162 and then all of a sudden you get hurt. And, and it's almost like when you mentioned depression, I, I don't necessarily think I had depression, but it's, it, but it was very much, I was a fish out of water. Now all of a sudden I'm walking into my clubhouse, 
that I kind of run and I'm going into the training room and all of a sudden I kind of feel like, I, I almost feel like I'm in the way. Like, man, my, mm-hmm. my, my boy, I'm not out there battling with them and I want to be so bad, but like you said, some things we go through, we just can't control, but it's a real weird feeling. And unless you've, you've gone through it and experienced it, it, it's tough to deal with as an athlete when you're used to being out there every day, all of a sudden, Oh, let me get off the training table because I got to let the players get on the training table yeah. that can actually get out there. And it's kind of a surreal feeling if you've never gone through it. So I completely understand when you, when you, when you mentioned, you know, borderline depression, because, you know, yeah. as, as athletes that play at this level and, and what we have to deal with, when you, when you take that away from you, you can't compete. It's, it's, it's a real different thing that you gotta, you gotta learn to, you gotta learn to deal with. All right. On to, you know, and I, you, you talked earlier about, it and I, and, I was, I read a little story that you went to the golf channel, right? See, I lived in Orlando Mm -hmm. for seven years. I never Mm -hmm. went to the golf channel. Tell me about going to the Mm -hmm. golf channel. And that's where you hit. Is that where you figured it out? Or was it, was it a separate time where you we found out the launch angle when you started carrying balls farther? No, that was, that was, uh, I was on the, I did the fitting probably about a year quite three years before that I was in the golf channel. I did the golf channel cause I was doing, uh, I've continued to do it the last five years. I go playing this, uh, golf tournament for the diamond resorts down in Orlando. And okay. I was there and, and they asked me to come on for, uh, the event. And it was really cool. I mean, to be able to, I, I, I probably watch, I watch MLB baseball. I used to watch it. MLB. Uh, baseball a lot and then it was the golf channel second so to be able to go and to be on the golf channel to talk to those guys that was pretty cool because you know that's who i watch on tv probably the most my still my favorite thing to watch is is a golf a big golf big golf tournament you know the masters Mm -hmm. are open when the best players are out there uh, that's still yep. my favorite thing. And, and for most people, you know, they, they figure I want to watch baseball or football. I said, I'd rather watch golf than anything. Most people say, what are you talking about? I said, it's great because it's my favorite hobby. And it's really yep. cool to watch the best players in the world and how they hit it so pure. And how when I'm on the course playing 18, I can't hit it as pure as they can. And it bugs me. <laughs> so, so you know, it, it drives me crazy, but I love it. I love playing with other athletes in a top sport at their game to just see what it's like at the level. And, uh, you know, golf's one of those unique games where you can go out and play with a tour player and, you know, you mm-hmm. might be a really good player, really good amateur player at the club, but you go out and play with a real tour player and there's such a big difference, just the way it sounds, the way they roll their putts, mm-hmm. the consistency. And you were talking about all the, tr- you know, the, the, the technology they have now. I mean, they just repeat mm-hmm. that swing and they get the right club in their hand and they're like a robot. And it's, it's pretty awesome to watch. All right. What about, what am I hearing about this, uh, this Viking TV show that you were supposed to go on? You never got on it, but once you explained to no, me, no, bringer of rain, it. that doesn't surprise me that you were going to go on Viking. No, I ended up doing. I ended up doing the the Vikings episode. I did it once. They asked me to come back. I, I didn't go back. Oh, okay. That's what. Uh, that's where I got it. That you didn't yeah. go back, but you did go on it once. Can I check it out? Where Where can I check it out? It's. I think it's on. I don't know if it's on Netflix or not, but I think it's this. They have two. Uh, like seasons into one season it's season four but the second part of the season four i want to say it's like episode 15 or 16 in that area i don't i forget exactly what uh episode it was in but i had some lines in there got to go out there fly out to ireland uh hang out with the crew do some filming and uh we had a good time with it it was great I'm going to check it out now. Josh, I appreciate it, man. I miss our talks. Uh, I'm pulling for you to get this, get this injury worked out and, and looking forward to seeing you next, uh, the next couple of years. Stay mm-hmm. in touch. I love you. Still one of my favorite, favorite guys, favorite players. 
And uh, always at the end of the podcast, what we do is we got we've got Dan Levy, the voice of the podcast, comes on with a uh, question from the fans. Danny, hi, hi Josh, hi Josh, how are hey, you? Dan. All right, Alrighty. all right. Well, since you're a current player, and this is a thing that's happening right now, I am in Chicago, and the biggest okay. news of the today is that Tony La Russa just became the new manager of the Chicago White Sox. To a lot of people's chagrin out here, a lot of people are not happy about it because they think he's too old and he might not be able to relate to the players of the current game. Your thoughts on it and what you think of that signage. And also, would you be able to play for a guy like Tony LaRusso if he started became, if he became your manager right now? Well, I mean, I think, I think the first thing when you, to me, Hearing that, because that's the first I, I've heard of Tony LaRusso signing. Uh, Tony LaRusso not only gets my respect, and as he should, the White Sox uh, team respect, but he's going to demand <laughs> respect. And uh, at the end of the day, man, he's he's been around a lot, seen a lot, and he's going to be able to relate to a lot of those players. Because guess what? He's had guys that were like Tim Anderson. He's had guys like that were like Moncada. He's had the Abreu. He's had all those type of players. So he's going to know based off of uh, the experiences that he's had growing and, you know, coming up as a manager and doing it for so long, he's going to know how to get the best out of those guys. Uh, that's, that's my opinion. So uh, I think he's going to do a great job and, I'm actually uh, probably not too thrilled about it because he's in our division. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that that's one of the other things I had to ask you about. It seems like as a Chicago person out here, whenever anybody gets excited on the American League side of things, the South side, the White Sox, oh, my God, we're, we can't wait for this Sox season to start. Everybody always goes, oh, that's right. They had the Minnesota Twins in that division, too. You guys always seem to have the White Sox number. How and what are you guys doing that does that? Nobody could ever get past you guys. Uh, I mean, you know, fortunately for us this year, uh, you know, the White Sox kind of tapered off towards the end. Um, but, you know, Rocco does a great job with all of us. Our front office in Minnesota is amazing. Uh, they do such a great job of, listening to the players, trying to obviously give as much information as possible to our players to be successful in that moment. And, and I think at the end of the day, what I've enjoyed so much about being in Minnesota is they want you to be yourself. They want you to go out there and have your personality and allow that to be shown. They want you to uh, go out there and compete as hard as you can and and ultimately win game ball ball games for the twins. Uh, our next step is you know to win a postseason game. I, I didn't even realize it going into this offseason or going into this postseason. It's been so long since we win a postseason game. Uh, so that's going to be the next step uh, that we have to get past next year. Obviously, we want to win the division first, postseason second. But I know a lot of guys in our clubhouse right now that there's going to be a lot of motivating factors to get past that uh, first round this next year. Very cool. And I would be remiss if I didn't say uh, on the other side of Chicago is that you were actually drafted by the Cubs. You were in the Cubs minor league yeah. system there for a little bit. Did you ever mm -hmm. picture what life would have been like had you stayed the course and been on the North side of Chicago? Yeah. I mean, that, that was a pretty unique situation, you know, to get drafted by the Cubs is, you know, the Braves and the Cubs are the two teams I watched the most growing up uh, due to a location of where I was at. Um, and I was pumped to be drafted by the Cubs. It didn't really work out to when I was there. And um, they traded me a, a year after I was drafted there. But, you know, I think everything happens for a reason. And who knows if I would have been the player or turned out to be the player I am today, if I would have stayed with the Cubs, uh, your guess is as good as mine, but I really, and Boone could attest to it too. The Oakland A's when I got traded there, the minor league system, as it continues to prove 
throughout the course of time that they, they do a great job of developing guys to get to the big leagues and then ultimately to stay in the big leagues. All right. Well, Josh, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. And again, if you want to follow him on Twitter, he does have one of the coolest Twitter handles of all time. And you guys brought it up earlier. Bringer of Rain 20 is where you can find him on Twitter. That is an awesome name, even though I didn't even know there was a real backstory to it. I just thought it was Bringer of Rain. That's awesome. So again, if you if you want to find Brett Boone on, on Twitter, it's not as original, but still pretty cool. It's at the Boone 29. Big shout out to all that have subscribed, commented, and shared this podcast. Please continue to do so as this podcast continues to grow by numbers and numbers. For the Golden Glover, the Silver Slugger, and All-Star Brett Boone, you've been listening to the Boone Podcast, and we'll chat with you guys later. Have a good one. See you, everybody.